What would you do if you discovered that the man who had raised you from your preteen years into young adulthood, who had implanted himself as a permanent fixture in your family dynamic, whom you had trusted with all of the vulnerabilities of childhood and young adulthood, had so grossly misappropriated and violated your trust, had violated your womanhood, had violated everything you had placed inside of this man by stealing hundreds of intimate photographs and plastering them all over his computer, marking them by body parts in specific folders to keep them well organized, and placing a prominent photograph of your breasts on his desktop background PC. Well, this is the story of exactly what Jay Jenks did in that given scenario on those very specific facts. Let's get started. What's up, everybody? I'm Omar Serrato, experienced and practicing attorney, fierce litigator, and unofficial commentator on the most popular legal issues of the day. I'm the host of the Tilted Lawyer podcast, joined by Eliana Colon Rosa and the TLP crew, where we break down the human aspects of law that everybody wants to talk about. I've been a practicing attorney for many years, but nothing in this show is or should be taken as legal advice. We're not going to pull any punches. We might even get a little bit dirty, but we want you to join us anyway. Jay Jenks, 39 years old, was an interior designer out of Solana Beach, California, where she owned Jay Jenks Interiors. It was a boutique interior design and decor studio. Um, It was her business and her primary focus as an adult human being who traveled this earth until, of course, she was sentenced to spend the rest of her life in prison. Her goal uh, was to offer a unique, custom, tailored experience Um, And indeed, her business specialized in remodeling, refurnishing, and restyling projects, focusing on creating functional and fabulous spaces or homes. She had labeled herself a design concierge of sorts, staying with her clients every step of the way, providing all the tools necessary to create a -a one-of-a-kind experience that her customers can call home. She had a picturesque life in the affluent suburbs of Solano County. San Diego, operating a multi-million dollar interior design empire, having accumulated a net worth of $15 million with her entire life ahead of her. Jakes was born on October 14th of 1983 to her parents, Jenny and Stephen Jenks. Her father was a business owner himself. He supported the family by operating a construction company while they were married. However, ultimately... The pair divorced when Jade was just 10 years old. And it was hard on little Jade because she had a wonderful relationship with her father. And despite no longer living in the same house, they were able to maintain their relationship after the divorce. Jenny Jenks, she's newly single, around 1995, while Jade was 11 years old, she decided to hit the market. And it was at that point that she met Tom Merriman, where the pair took a liking to each other and moved rapidly towards marriage, resulting in the birth of Jade's half-brother, Cash. Now, after a few years of marriage, Jenny divorced Merriman in 2002, and despite the divorce, the family stayed relatively close together and kept in touch regularly, Tom remaining a constant presence with the family. Cash ended up pursuing a degree in psychology, and Jade, very much still in tune with her biological father, took up a keen interest 
in his construction business. It was during this period where she started to begin to develop the foundation for her passion for interior design, leading to the growth of her empire. She continued to develop that interest by attending San Diego's Mesa College and working with her father at his construction company. Now, if you had the opportunity to pick where you were born out of any time in the 93 billion year history of the universe and live a life that opened the door to as many opportunities for happiness and fulfillment as possible, being Jade Jenks in the 2010s, a young, vibrant, attractive young woman with ambition for interior design and connections to take her all the way to the top, where quite literally the riches of this earth were at her fingertips. Should she choose to move in any direction, it was about as good of a position you could possibly ask for without being greedy. And indeed, Jade was really enjoying her life. She indulged in all of the finer things that her lot in life had brought to her. Boating vacations, designer clothes, trips to luxurious dinner spots, taking all the pictures that would make any aspiring social media influencer sick with envy. Jade managed to parlay her position at her father's company to a sales and management position, which led to her landing a job as a project engineer at Gordon Prill. But her true passion was interior design, and it was this realization that led to her venturing out on her own and starting Jade Jenks Interiors. Throughout all of this, Jade remained very close with her family, her biological father, and even her stepdad, Tom, who had actively supported her throughout the decade of knowing each other. Now, Tom was getting a little bit older in age. He wasn't doing very well. He had an addiction to alcohol that he was never able to shake. And in the midst of that addiction, he developed a separate addiction to sleeping pills. And Jay knew about these addictions. She offered her help. She did have a great deal of admiration and respect for Tom and the role that he played as her stepfather. And eventually she decided to move into a house next door to him, partly to better help care for him. After the move, Jade's career just kind of took off. She had secured from her dad, uh, who was continuing to manage his own business, um, she worked several jobs in interior design. She gained the necessary expertise and experience that would have been required to start her own business, which she eventually did. That was Jade Jinx Interiors. Now, around the same time, Tom decided to start a butterfly farm he wanted to create something beautiful in this world, according to him, when he thought about starting it. And it was in these capacities that the family circle remained for years without any hints of trouble until, of course, there was trouble. On New Year's Day 2021, a gentleman by the name of Adam Ciliak walked into a police station to report strange behavior that he had observed on the part of Jade Jenks. You see, not prior, not too long prior to his visit to the police, Jade had asked Adam to help move Tom upstairs. She said that uh, he had uh, drank a little bit too much and he had some sleeping pills and she was trying to get him out and he had passed out. She wanted help moving him upstairs. Well, Adam couldn't do it right that moment, but he decided to show up to her house anyway a couple hours after the invitation. And when he got to the house, uh, what he found was Tom in a truck, slumped over in his vehicle. And not wanting any part of that, uh, Tom decided to go to the police and tell them about it. And that prompted a welfare check 
to see how Tom's doing. So the police arrive on scene. They discover the truck that Adam had told them about. It was now empty. There was some debris there on the driveway, which seemed unremarkable at first. The police go to knock on the door. Nobody answers. They peer through the windows, don't see anything. They do a perimeter check of the house and find nothing remarkable. They found nothing more interesting than that pile of garbage that had accumulated in front of the house and taking another gander upon that garbage that was collected in the driveway. Um they discovered the lifeless body of Tom. He was covered in such a way that it was obvious that whoever put him in there was trying to hide that he was there. Blood had pooled around his face, indicating that he had been there for several hours at least. Based on these findings, we had the beginning of the investigation into the death of Tom. Based on the circumstances of how the body was situated, appearing to have been intentionally hidden from view, even if it was sloppily hidden from view, of course, the police had suspected foul play, and their first suspect in the case was Jade. Now, of course, Jade had denied the entire thing. She was very quick to point out that she had specifically moved next door to care for him, given that he had a number of ailments, was getting up there in age, was struggling with several addictions, um, and needed her assistance. But the story, her story, changed rapidly, and ultimately it fell apart. And given the suspicious circumstances surrounding the death and Jane's unsatisfactory answers, she was arrested on suspicion of murder. Now, Jane, being suspected of the murder, made absolutely no sense to anybody that knew Tom or Jade. Just a week prior to Tom's death, he was taken to the hospital after suffering a nasty fall. Now, nobody accused Jade of causing the fall. He fell. Um, and Jade had accompanied him to that visit. And by all indications, there was no indication yet that Jade was aware of anything um, that she had would later discover. She was there to care for Tom. She was the only one caring for Tom as he recovered from the fall. And she was tasked with administering his medications, tending to his injuries. But Tom was going to have to spend a little bit of time in the hospital. And so here's what happened. While Tom was being cared for at the hospital... Jade went back to his house to clean up a little bit so that the place, his place, would be clean upon his return. In the midst of cleaning up in his office, she accidentally nudged the mouse connected to his laptop, causing it to wake up. And as the screen flashed to life, she was looking at a picture of a woman's breasts that deeply resembled her own. As she testified at trial... She had a birthmark that was recognizable in the photographs, and that's what allowed her to identify herself in the photo. Now, she had remembered sending a similar picture to that to a boyfriend some time ago. And upon further inspection, she had discovered hundreds of photographs of her in various stages of dress. The photographs on the laptop were organized into separate folders that were labeled by body parts, and having gone through all of the photos, she quickly realized that some of the photos on that computer were from more than 10 years ago, which would have made her 16 years old at the time that the photographs were taken, and many of the photographs were shared with previous ex-boyfriends, all of which had previously been stored on computers or phones that had belonged to her that no longer existed, or that she had thoughts that she had discarded 
that wasn't nearly as disturbing as her discovery of a separate grouping of photographs that appeared to have been taken with a hidden camera that was located in a bathroom and in her bedroom, clearly without her consent. It was at this moment, having sat for who knows how long, staring at those photographs, where she had come to the realization that her stepfather, Tom Merriman, a man who had played a large role raising her in some of her most formative years into a preteen and teenage years who she had entrusted with her childhood, who she had entrusted with her dreams and ambitions, whom she had entrusted to protect her at her most vulnerable moments had so deeply violated her and it was all on display on that laptop computer while Tom was away being cared for his injuries. This was the crucial moment. This is the moment where she had to make a decision. She was likely under the traumatic spell of shock from having discovered such vile material that somebody that she had the utmost trust and respect for. She had to decide what she was going to do. And if you can imagine for a second how you might have reacted in a similar situation, it's very easy to say that you might have gone to the police that you might have gone to your mom, that you might have gone to your dad, that you might have gone to a best friend or a family member, that you might have disappeared for a couple of days to reset yourself and come to grips with what you had just seen. All of those would have been vastly better options than what Jenks ultimately decided to do, which was to plan for Tom, her stepfather's, execution. Jade did have a little bit of time to think about it. She wasn't scheduled to pick up Tom for a couple of days from the hospital. She decided that she was going to take a stab at deceiving people, planning that the knowledge of Tom's alcohol and sleeping pills addiction, murdering him in such a way to make it look like a drug overdose in such a manner would erase all suspicion of any wrongdoing. And I couldn't put more emphatically enough to say that she failed at that plan miserably. Logically speaking, it seems like a reasonable plan if your plan was to deceive as she did have those addictions working for her. She did have access to his medications. She did have unabated access to Tom himself if she wanted to carry out such a plan. The problem that she had is that she tried to include other people in her plan for whatever reason with whom she communicated through text message. Text messages, all of which were recovered, pointing to her specifically as the murderer pointing to her specific plan and leading to her inevitable demise where she now sits in a jail cell for the rest of her life as the district attorney that prosecuted the case during her closing arguments very poignantly pointed to these text messages as being her confession to the murder of Tom. Some of the text messages read, I just dosed the hell out of him. Stopping for a whiskey, then at Dixieland to stall, let me know, dot, dot, dot. He's waking up. I really don't want to be the one to do this. I'm about to club him on the head as he's waking up. I'm not strong enough. He's very aware now, and I'm on my own. I can't carry him alone, and I can't keep a kicking body in my trunk. The person whom helped her with this plan completely bailed on her, said the hell with that. And still having to deal with the issue of moving the body, that's when she decided to call out Adam telling him that Tom had collapsed in her car after having some whiskey and sleeping pills and she needed help. 
uh, moving him because she wasn't able to do it herself. And Adam said, I can't. Um, he was doing something at the time. So she did it herself. Adam, having gone to the house anyway, several hours later, after he told her he couldn't, he discovers Tom's body in the truck. Adam said, the hell with that, and made his way over to the police station. And eventually, Jade came clean to Adam about what she had found. And he just wasn't down with her plan to deceive. Jade did take the stand, and she had delivered her testimony. And she had um, indicated exactly how she felt upon stumbling upon the photographs that her father had taken of her, well, that he had on his computer. And um, she displayed real emotion. Her defense team had tried to argue uh, that she was so aggrieved by what she had found. Um, You know, she was out of her right mind. Uh, They asked for leniency at the sentencing hearing based on her state of mind, based on the fact that she was herself victimized, even if her response to her victimization was imperfect. Um, the district attorney just pointed her uh, as a cold-blooded murderer. And if you could imagine those text messages, if you follow them, just in your mind's eye, you can see, despite whatever evidence came out, whatever testimony came out about how their theory of what, of what happened about how Adam was murdered, they get the text messages. I just dosed the hell out of them. So in your mind's eye, Obviously, she gave him, probably did give him whiskey and sleeping pills. And then she tries to, I guess, sort of establish an alibi. She stopped for her whiskey herself at a place called Dixieland to stall. Um, And then you get this text message. He's waking up. And I really don't want to be the one to have to do this, which begs the question. I wonder if she had asked somebody else to do it for her. I wonder if she had intended for him to wake up. But when he did wake up, imagine her uh, surprise, and now she's halfway in. At this point, he's waking up. She probably could have stopped herself and just did something else, and Tom may not have been any the wiser for it. But she says, I'm about to club him on the head as he's waking up. Who knows what she uh, used to club him on the head, but so she strikes him on the head. And then another text message, she had enough time to hit him in the head Obviously, it didn't kill Tom because she then says, I'm not strong enough. He's very aware now. And imagine the horror. If you are Tom, whatever you feel about his actions, he's just been clubbed in the head. He may or may not be in and out of conscious. He's clearly drugged up because she tried to dose him. She says she dosed the hell out of him. He's probably disoriented. I wonder if he had any awareness that his stepdaughter from so many years ago whom he had fixated on, whom he had this fascination with, uh, was actively trying to murder him. Clearly, at some point, she gets him unconscious, and again, there was testimony in this case that she manually tried to strangle him, which is not the easiest thing to do if you were a smallish, waifish woman the way that Jay Jenks is. She just not, she admits she's not the strongest, and it takes a lot of strength to strangle the life out of anybody with your bare hands, which is what she tried to do. Um, Now she's got a dead body or an unconscious body because he's still kicking. She says, I can't carry him alone. Um, She's trying to get him out of the car. (sighs) And I can't keep a kicking body in my trunk. Kicking how? Was he convulsing? 
Uh, was he uh, just kicking involuntarily? Was it voluntarily? Was there purpose with his kicks? Who knows? But he was still alive at that point. So whatever happened to Tom, his death was not over quickly. He did not enjoy what was happening to him. He was uh, very aware that he was being murdered. And if he wasn't aware, then he was aware that something bad was happening, clearly. And this is what we have. Put yourself in that position. Imagine how you would feel, whatever hyperbole you wanted to attach to it, that you feel like you need to attach to it. Place yourself in Jenks shoes at this point, where she's coming upon this dis- this, this, this disgusting discovery that she found. Um, she gets up to testify, and this is what she had to say about it. When I went to clean um, in his office area, I was kind of wiping things down, and um, I bumped the mouse on his desktop computer, and it, it shook the screen awake. And I looked, and there's a picture of female breasts on the screen. And I look, um, I have a beauty mark kind of on my chest, and I look, and I'm like, those, those are my breasts, so. Um, so let me stop right, you right there. Throughout her testimony today, uh, she needed a couple breaks to compose herself. Uh, she testified she found more than 100 nude photos of herself on her stepdad, Thomas Merriman's computer, and that he had actually cropped some of the photos of her and divided them up into different folders based on her different body parts. She testified the photos date back to when she was as young as 16 years old. As she says, the pictures had been on her laptop and on a digital camera in private folders that she never thought he would have access to. Now, her defense attorney repeatedly asked her, did you ever show photos like this to Merriman? Did you ever tell him about these photos? Uh, she kept saying, no, no, he was my dad. Now, Jenks is accused of killing Merriman by giving him pills and suffocating him. Uh, his body was found under a pile of trash next to his garage on January 2nd of 2021. At one point this morning, her attorney told her to speak directly to the jury and to tell them how finding the photos made her feel. It was the most violating, just awful, gut-wrenching feeling ever. I felt, I felt sick. I, I felt, I couldn't, I couldn't, like, I couldn't even touch my own skin. Um, I don't even know if there's words. I mean, not even in a movie have I seen something so just sick. Now, the jury uh, was handed a packet of what appeared to be thumbnails of some of those photos. Uh, they kind of handed them uh, one to the other. One juror, a female juror, kind of shook her head, briefly looked at it, and passed it on to the next juror. So clearly uh, a defining moment in this case right now. There was a lot of testimony in the case. There was a lot of stuff that came out. But ultimately, the jury had to decide what to do with her. There was not going to be very much chance for her to get to produce the reasonable doubt required to get her out of the charges. Those text messages were very damning. And so the legal question was very simple. Did she, with malice in her heart, plot to kill her father and execute, carry out that plan? And was she successful? The answer was yes. The answer was yes, based on all of the evidence. Uh, she did try to deny it, you know, but ultimately it didn't work out. And so she was convicted. And there was very uh, chilling, startling footage 
of the verdict as she was read. And when you watch the verdict, you could you just kind of feel like she thought, based on what had happened to her, that uh, the jury was going to acquit her, whether or not she believed that she killed Tom or not, that she just had this expectation that it was going to go the other way. Superior Kate, Court of the State of California, for the County of San Diego, the people of the State of California plaintiff versus Jade Sasha Jenks, defendant. Case number SCN 420-772. Verdict, count one, first degree murder. We, the jury, in the above entitled cause, find the defendant, Jade Sasha Jenks, guilty of the crime of murder in violation of penal code section 187, subsection A, a felony, as charged in count one of the amended information, and fix the degree thereof as murder in the first degree. Dated today's date, sign the foreperson. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, was this and is this? Your verdict is read? Yes, yes. 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 All right, does either side wish to have the jury hold? No, Your Honor. Yes, Your Honor. All right, uh, Madam Clerk, please pull the jury. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, please answer with a yes or no, answer only, as to count one, first degree murder, was this and is this your verdict is read. Juror number one. Yes. Number two. Yes. Number three. Yes. Number four. Yes. Number five. Number six. Yes. Number seven. Yes. Number eight. Yes. Number nine. Yes. Number ten. Yes. Number 11? Yes. Number 12? Yes. Your Honor, I record 12 affirmative responses. All right, Madam Clerk, please record the verdict. So recorded, Your Honor. Counsel, do you waive reading of the verdict as recorded? Yes, Your Honor. Yes, Your Honor. All right. So after that, um, they had to do a sentencing hearing, and you got to have family members on both sides, you know, ask for the leniency in sentencing her. And, of course, there were people to speak on behalf of Tom Merriman. And um, it was one of the most bizarre um, sentencing hearings that I could remember. And it's, it's one of these rare cases where there's victims on both sides. The victim in this case, the murder victim, had grossly um, violated um, her, his killer. And so you have this dichotomy. Now, I think most people, they kind of separate. There are some people that are able to just pick one side and go all the way on one side or the other, the way that the DA was forced to in this case, for example. Um, as he was giving his closing arguments, there wasn't much sympathy for her. He, he took the position that she brutally murdered Tom in a way uh, that most people don't have it in them to do, which she did, which she did. Um, so he stood in judgment of her. And then there's the other side of it where you have this man who God knows what else that that guy was into. But clearly he had images of her when she was a child on his computer um, and had stolen those intimate photos of her directly. Whether or not it's meritorious of death, I don't know. I'm not here to judge. Um, only to point out that there were victims on both sides, and this is some of the highlights from the sentencing hearing. To this particular case, I do believe that the defense effectively and appropriately presented to the jury the provocation and mitigation that existed in this case on behalf of Ms. Jenks. I do believe that 
do believe that the jury was appropriately instructed and considered the provocation. I think they considered the mitigation. And I think that the jury ultimately determined that it didn't justify Ms. Jenks' actions. And therefore, they found her guilty of first-degree murder, and I do believe that the evidence supported their conclusion. In this particular case, she is presumptively ineligible for probation pursuant to Penal Code Section 1203E3. I don't believe there are any unusual circumstances which would be appropriate for a grant of probation. Even if she were eligible for probation, I believe under Rule 4.414B2 that her prior performance was unsatisfactory and probation would not be appropriate in this case. Therefore, probation will be denied. She will be committed to the Department of Corrections for the term of the rest of her life in prison with a minimum eligibility of parole date for 25 years from now. So in essence, 25 years to life. She will receive credits of 131 actual, zero good time credits pursuant to Penal Code Section 2933.2 for a total of 131 days credit. She is ordered to pay a restitution fine in the amount of $300, additional restitution fine in the amount of $300 to be stayed and remain so unless her post-release supervision is revoked. I will strike the court security fee, the ICNA fee. I will order that restitution be paid to the family in an amount to be determined at a later date by the court. I will also order that the Victim's Compensation Program be paid an amount of $2,690.40 pursuant to claim ending 924. All other claims will be reserved as well. Does she wish to waive her presence, Mr. Carlos, if there is a future request? Yes, sir. All right. We'll indicate the 977 waiver. She is to submit to DNA testing pursuant to Penal Code Section 296. All fines, fees, and restitution to be paid forthwith or as provided in Penal Code Section 2085.5. All things being equal, she may get out of prison when she's 64, 65 years old or so. But she's going to be spending uh, the rest of her uh, most viable years uh, behind bars. And judging her from her sentencing, from how she was when the verdict was read, obviously two different pictures. I think she's resigned uh, to her fate at this point. And um, she had indicated at her sentencing hearing that she hopes to be able to do some good um, while in prison, uh, and which, you know, good for her. And whatever you think of her, whatever your opinion of her, um, I certainly have my opinions. And were not statutorily prohibited, um, having spoken to a lot of victims of similar crimes as she being the victim of somebody that has violated her trust in that way, um, every single one of them have a specific uh, fantasy about getting back at the person that had violated them. And this was the rare opportunity where she had a unique opportunity, unsupervised by anybody, to get at this guy and murder him in the way that she did. 
And were it not for her poor planning, she might have got away with it. If the plan was an overdose, you know, she didn't give him enough. If the plan was she was going to murder him by clubbing him over the head, she wasn't strong enough. If the plan was she was going to do this without having to involve other eyewitnesses, didn't work out. And so could she have benefited from uh, taking some time to herself, uh, retreating back to family, to her circle of friends, telling them about everything that happened and uh, gaining some space between what she had found and what she was going to do next. Yeah, that would have really, really, really helped. And in that case, we might not be, well, we would not be talking about her murder trial. We would be talking about the trial um, against Tom Merriman, where he would have been forced to answer for his actions. And then she would have had the opportunity at a sentencing hearing to go and tell the world how his actions had impacted her. Instead, we don't get to, we don't have to have her tell us. We know it's impacted her because she's now behind bars until she's at least 64, 65 years old. Not yet quite ready for uh, social security, but pretty close. And so that's all we have for you uh, for episode 30 of the Silt Lawyer podcast. I appreciate you guys for watching and um, we will see you guys all uh, next time. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening to the entire podcast. We really do appreciate that. And as always, you can find us on YouTube on the Tilted Lawyer Podcast YouTube channel or on your podcast carrier of choice. If you feel we've presented anything of value, please leave a five-star rating, like, and subscribe. We always appreciate that kind of thing. And we do look forward to seeing you all again live every Thursday at 3 in the afternoon. We love you all. Take care. Bye-bye. Boom. Oh.